amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Food Factor. Unleashing the power of nutrition and culinary delights where we explore the world of nutrition and cooking. Serving up bite-sized wisdom to fuel your well-being and tantalize your taste buds. Here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. We've got another great guest, Dr. Patrick B. Wilson. He's a PhD in RD. He's also Associate Professor of Exercise Science, Assistant Chair of Human Movement Sciences at Old Dominion University over in Virginia. And today we're going to be talking about the athlete's gut. Also, he's the author of the book called The Athlete's Gut as well. We're going to find out a lot about nutrition and athletes. Is it different than the general population? Well, I think if you don't know, it is. And if you do know, then you're going to be really excited about this. To listen more about how do athletes need to eat and how different is it? We'll find out. Before we get started, you know what to do. Share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. And that's not wasting any more time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wilson. Welcome. Hey, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, it's uh, be great to talk about some of these issues with uh, athletes and feeling and nutrition. It's a big area of interest for a lot of, a lot of folks from recreational people to the elite level. Absolutely. I guess that's one of the things that people sometimes – there is well let me see how do i phrase this there is a distinction i guess we'll have start off with that question there's somewhat of a distinction between untrained and trained individuals but even in the trained maybe the people who work out three to four days a week uh, doing weights maybe some cardio but then athletes like baseball players football players and i'll also explore that with you too is are there differences in sports but what are the differences between those three groups the untrained the fitness enthusiast and then the athlete is there a difference yeah, I think nutritionally, definitely the largest difference is going to be between your uh, your sedentary individual and then the higher highly trained or higher trained individual. And to a large extent, it comes down to duration intensity of of activity. You know, in terms of your your training mm-hmm. volume. So if you're spending you know one to two to three hours per day, especially at moderate to high intensities in terms of your activity the metabolic demands for that are going to be pretty large and the fueling um, requirements for that are going to be more substantial than if you're, you know, working out maybe three, four times a week for 30 to 60 minutes. Um, Not to say that nutrition doesn't make a difference because of course it can, but it becomes probably more critical for individuals who are partaking in training volumes and intensities that really put stress on, you know, the, fuel reserves that you use from day to day, um, put stress on your ability to uh, adapt to training um, in terms of making sure you've got enough protein, 
other nutrients to ensure you're metabolically ready to go. Um, if, again, if you're spending lots of time, um, especially in those moderate to high intensity zones. Now, if you're doing activity and it's lower intensity for a few hours per day, that's, uh, you know, there may be some nutritional considerations there, but when I teach this stuff um, in my classes in our university, a lot of the discussions around the needs are based on intensity and duration, a combination of those factors. Hmm. Now, I don't know how specific a person has to get, maybe an athlete does, because obviously a 10th of a second can make a huge difference for the athlete. Um, but how about bioavailability of protein? You mentioned protein. Is that going to be something that really matters? In other words, an egg compared to some other form of protein, like a peanut butter? The bioavailability becomes perhaps a little bit more important when you're at lower to moderate doses of protein. There's been mm. a few studies that have fed higher doses comparing like vegetarian sources versus uh, animal-based sources and muscle growth and strength gains have been pretty similar. Like if let's say you feed uh, individuals a total of one and a half uh, grams for every kilogram of their body mass, if it's all from uh, vegetarian sources, including may maybe like a soy supplement or something like that, or some other vegetarian source, uh, source, and then you compare that to an omnivore diet, at those higher protein intakes, it, it, at least in the studies that have been done, it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of difference on muscle strength and muscle hypertrophy. If someone was uh, consuming a lower amount of protein, I, I think it's, you know, there's a potential that source um, in terms of animal versus plants could make some difference with muscle growth, but direct evidence for that is you know, not super clear. Um, when people say that, let's say an animal product or protein is better, it's almost exclusively based on just short-term feeding studies where they give people, let's say, you know, whey protein versus soy protein or some other plant-based protein and look at the acute muscle protein synthesis response within, let's say, eight hours or something. And that can only tell you so much. So, um, I think largely as long as if someone's a vegetarian or they're eating a lot of plant-based sources of protein, as long as they, as long as their total protein intake is sufficient, um, and on the higher side, I don't really think you need to get too bogged down in terms of the source of protein as much as what sometimes people may convey. And I don't know if this is too broad of a question, but, um, macronutrient differences among different sport athletes, in other words, like baseball and football and basketball. They're similar, but at the same time, like baseball, if, if you're an outfielder, it's kind of a peculiar position because you're just sitting there for who knows how long, and then boom, you got to go. And basketball, you're not really ever sitting there unless you're on the bench. But is there differences for macronutrients there? Yeah, I would say the biggest difference tends to be the amount of carbohydrate that you might be consuming from day to day, dependent on sport. So, an example, um, you know, on a day where you're competing, you know, a, a half marathoner or a marathoner has a lot higher chance of depleting their carbohydrate stores and, and running into problems with sustaining higher intensity activity. Uh, usually with competition and the intensities you're you're going at, let's say for a half marathon or marathon, you might run out of glycogen stored carbohydrate um, mm -hmm. in some cases within an hour to an hour and a half. So yeah, there is a real risk of running low Whereas with, you know, a baseball player, especially, or even a basketball player, the amount of distance that a, a professional basketball player covers in the game is not all that much. Now they do have some periods where they're doing high intensity stuff. 
sprinting, obviously jumping, but for those athletes, it's not quite as critical to have um, such high carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. So it's dependent a lot on the sport. Uh, soccer is an interesting team sport where it's kind of like uh, it's a combination of both aerobic high intensity and they actually do cover a fair amount of distance in a soccer professional soccer game. Um, also, if you like play the whole soccer game, you're there for 90 minutes at a minimum, whereas the basketball player is going to have some time on the bench. They might play for, you know, on average 30 to 35 minutes a game. So there's differences even in, among team sports, potentially in the requirement for especially carbohydrate. So I, not every not every single athlete needs to be, you know, crushing carbohydrates every single day. It depends on the metabolic needs of that sport. And there are some sports where it's more critical than others to um, regularly consume a higher amount of carbohydrate. What but even within point? sports like a marathon or there's not going to there's going to be periods of time where it's less critical to be consuming lots of carbohydrate. Uh, so I, I think that's a, been an evolution in a lot of the sport nutrition recommendations over the last couple of decades is to recognize some of the nuance there and just realize that just because somebody's an athlete doesn't necessarily mean they need to be eating a ton of carbohydrate all the time. Boy, that's a, that's so true. The evolution of the world of sports exercise and the sports nutrition is amazing. <laughs> the last 20 years. Um, those are great points. And I, I guess my other I had two questions that spawned from that, but the first one would be any research on carbohydrate loading two or three days prior. I keep hearing about this a lot now. For certain sports. Yeah. And it tends to be things that last more than 60 minutes. Um, and, mm. and I should clarify carbohydrate loading means different things to different people, but studies that I've actually done like a carbohydrate loading protocol, usually we're talking about, you know, a minimum of something like eight grams for every kilogram of your body mass, upwards of 10 is, is more common. So I just did something like that for a half marathon that I ran um, about a month ago. And I didn't, I didn't get to 10, but I got to, I think it was eight grams for every kilogram of my mass. And that was roughly around 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. A lot. For about a day and a half is what I, the time frame that I did it for. And it's not necessarily easy to eat that amount. Um, <laughs> And I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that regularly because I'm not I'm not doing a half marathon regularly at maximal <laughs> intensity on a daily basis. So it's something I reserve for doing, you know, once every couple months or few months when there's a, a longer effort that I know is going to be done at a maximal intensity <clears throat> where I'll actually actually count out the amount of carbohydrate that I'm eating and try and target a fairly high amount. Um so carbohydrate loading, yeah, usually it's defined of around kind of that, you know, 10 milligram or excuse me, 10 gram per kilogram of body mass, maybe a little bit lower. Uh, but it's it's more than just pasta or something like the night beforehand or a carbohydrate rich breakfast. It's concerted carbohydrate rich foods pretty much at every meal, along with eating carbohydrate sources in between, including beverages or other sort of dense things like candies or, you know, dried fruit, things like that. Uh, but it's only really necessary if whatever you're doing is probably more than at least 60 minutes. If it's less than that, uh, generally you've got enough stored carbohydrate to make it through those activities without running out. So uh, it's not something I would do normally, but it is potentially helpful in situations where you might anticipate you're going to be running low on your internal stores of carbohydrate. So maybe a soccer player who plays the whole 90? Yeah, I would say, you know, do they need to go to 10 grams per kilogram? Probably not, but 
Um, at least, you know, I, I, there's some studies. Uh, one interesting one I know of that was kind of a field study where they use GPS monitors to look at how much soccer mm -hmm. players ran in one condition. I think it was eight grams per kilogram in the other condition. It was three, which is pretty low. Um, it's not, I wouldn't define that necessarily as low carbohydrate, but it's, it's quite low for an athlete. Uh, and pretty much every soccer player in that study ran farther and did more high intensity work when they were on the higher carbohydrate condition. Um, so yeah, it's certainly a higher amount before a game. I don't know, know that a soccer player would need to go as high as 10, uh, but maybe the six to eight range grams per kilogram of body mass is a reasonable recommendation for a soccer player. You reminded me when you said about pasta, and I'm thinking about my college days, thinking all you can eat pasta places. <laughs> it's a good idea for those days. Yeah, it's pretty much what I did the last time I did this was I just made a, a entire box of shell noodles and ate half of it at lunch and then half <laughs> of it at dinner. Uh, I think the next time I'm going to switch to uh, to rice just because I think it's a little bit easier mm -hmm. to get down the quantities required. And then beverages, you know, sugar beverages, sweetened beverages. I, I don't drink regularly, but on those days that you're eating a lot of carb, it's easier to get down a simple form of sugar like that. You know, I asked a dietitian yesterday that you bring that up because it's really surprising to me. It's been, shoot, I don't know, 30 years now, maybe 40 years, at least maybe 40. I don't know. I'm so old. I can't remember 51, but I'm trying to think uh, Gatorade has been around forever. And when I read the sports nutrition books and textbooks, I'm kind of a geek that way. I like to read textbooks. And I was reading the textbook and I was thinking, Gatorade's still up there as the number one, number two. Um, yeah. Marketing will do wonders for you. <laughs> Is it that good or are there other options that are better? Uh, it's There's nothing, to be completely honest, there's nothing unique about Gatorade in terms of the composition. It's sugar water with some electrolytes. Um, there is really nothing, I would say, unique about Gatorade as a product in terms of uh, what's in there. I mean, it's unique because it was really the first sports beverage that mm. was marketed and sold and it's had a huge share of the market for many many years so obviously they've got a leg up i think on a lot of competitors from that respect but basically all sports beverages are is just you know a little bit of variation in the carbohydrate content in terms of the percentage of you know uh, rams of carbohydrate relative to the liters of fluid most are around six percent carbohydrate they very mm -hmm. sometimes a little bit below that sometimes a bit above that um but for the most part, they're all the same. They're sugar water with some differences in the composition of sugars. But there's really, to for the most part, there's not real huge differences between most sports drinks. Although all of them would like you to think it think there are major differences <laughs> because they're selling product. And I understand you want to create and market something that seems unique, but you know it's it comes down to kind of I guess individual preference and a, maybe a few other factors in terms of deciding if you want to use one product versus another. But they're all sugar water. And for the people who get more intense about this, I'm still there's I'm sure there's some students out there sitting, what about the isotonic component? Is that really something that's relative or is it kind of a Yeah, that's an interesting. It's one of those things that you can show in very super geeky physiological studies that you know, an isotonic <laughs> beverage, the fluid will get absorbed usually maybe a bit quicker. Um in the end, you know, that's not the only consideration I would make, though, when I'm picking a beverage. Like, think mm. about a an elite marathoner. Some of them are consuming 90 to 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour. If you wanted to do that from an isotonic beverage, you would have to drink a liter and a half 
per hour of Gatorade, which is not, you know, that, that would be disastrous in terms of your stomach, uh, stomach comfort. So they, they consume beverages that are denser in carbohydrates. And by definition, they're more hypertonic. Now they train themselves to kind of be able to deal with that. Um, so I think the, the, the idea that an isotonic beverage is always better, it's not necessarily the case. It depends kind of on your objectives. If your main objective is to eat a lot of carbohydrate, during exercise, then no, an isotonic beverage isn't going to be the best choice. Um, for some people, if they're looking for more of a moderate carbohydrate consumption rate, then an isotonic beverage is perfectly fine. It might uh, might be a little bit easier on the stomach. Um, but there are other considerations beyond, you know, whether it's hypertonic or isotonic that really I would factor in before I really pick a beverage. And that's not the main one that I would really probably focus on in most cases. By the way, folks, again, we're talking to Dr. Patrick Wilson, and he is the author of the book called The Psychosis. Lost it. I had it. There it is. The Athlete's Gut, the Inside Science, and it's cutting me off here, Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. We're going to be talking a little bit about that too, because there are some foods, and we'll see Dr. Wilson agrees that you probably shouldn't have or sports day, or game day, because they may not help you. Uh, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, let me ask you about this then. This is what I was going to originally ask you, but then isotonic thing popped in my head. Uh, and do you have to get really specific per individual? I know, as you mentioned earlier, you're getting more nuanced, not you, but the industry itself is getting more nuanced, realizing that we got different sports. How about athletes themselves? Are they processing food differently did some athletes require more sugar less sugar more carbs less carbs anything like that or is that too much um yeah i mean day to day there's differences in requirements for carbohydrate based on the things that kind of mentioned earlier with you know the amount and intensity of stuff you're doing during exercise itself like how much should you consume during exercise there's some individual differences and a lot of that would be dependent on again duration and intensity but also just the the caliber of athlete um, huh. and their individual feeding tolerance. So, you know, you can look at the best marathoners in the world and they may be, again, consuming 60 to 90 grams per hour for every hour that they're running, which is a very, very high aggressive rate of carbohydrate consumption, again, during competition. Um, that's not necessary for somebody who's an average marathoner. They're not burning carbohydrate is fast. They're not expending his energy at uh, equivalent rate. So they don't, you know, generally you would not advise a middle of the road marathoner to be consuming, you know, 80 grams of carbohydrate per hour. It's really for higher level athletes that are burning carbohydrate at a high rate. And they're trying to sustain that high rate of burn. And, and that's why they're eating so much during some of these races. Uh, so it's caliber of athlete. It's the event and duration um, shorter events and games like a basketball game, um, other types of sports where it's less than an hour during the actual activity. In most cases, you don't need anything. You know, it's, it's not long enough for many athletes to really justify much consumption. Um, so if you're, you know, running a 10 K race and you're finishing in 40 minutes or something like that, or 45 minutes, you really don't need anything. In most cases in terms of performance, for something that short it's when you get beyond an hour where it becomes uh usually more beneficial to think about that so yeah it's, it comes down to the the athlete's sports or event 
their caliber, higher level athletes generally require probably more aggressive approaches and then individual tolerance. Some people like we will do studies in the lab and some people have got an iron gut. You can give them anything and they seem fine. And then you give somebody else even a moderate amount of fluid or, or carbohydrate and they've got, you know, ratings of four or five, six out of 10 for fullness and bloating and, and reflux. So some people just for whatever reason, don't tolerate um, those types of aggressive approaches. So you've got to kind of individualize based on the person um, as well as the other factors that I mentioned. Yeah, that's where it gets complicated because I know I was speaking to a dietitian the other day, a sports dietitian, and what she was saying is it's always nice in the books. <laughs> they give you the recommendations and stuff. And then when you get to the real life, like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> that didn't work yes. out at all. Yeah. And that's something I try and impress on my students is that these are starting recommendations you can look at in textbooks or like position stands on nutrition and athletic performance. It's a good starting point, but then you got to try and consider the individual sport. You have to consider the individual athletes, what their goals are and what their, you know, what their tolerance is. And, and those are all things that are difficult to uh, sometimes balance and figure out, but yeah, it's the art of, of, being a practitioner is trying to take into consideration those individualized things that you don't get with generalized recommendations. Have you noticed, I'm trying to see how I would frame this one for you, because I know when we talked about it, it was interesting to hear the cultural challenges that they can arise with athletes. Um, because certain cultures are like, well, I don't want to eat that and, or I want to eat this. And I want to, can we incorporate some of my own foods? So if you're looking like people from Mexico, maybe, or my family background is Cuban um, so we might try to get more rice in there than other cultures. Anything like that ever come across where you're like, well, this, you know, I mean, I would just say, usually you try and work with an athlete, you know, if you're coming up, for example, it's like an example menu plan. I mean, you want to work within their preferences as, as much as you can recognizing that, you know, food is not just fuel. It's also a source of enjoyment and, mm. and culture for people. And um, I think sometimes uh, practitioners can make mistakes if they just think about it purely in kind of the feeling perspective and forget that people eat for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they eat different foods for different reasons from social to cultural to ethical. So yeah, as much as you can work within uh, those parameters in terms of you know what they're willing to eat, what they're interested in eating and try and make adjustments based off the person. Uh, what are some of the biggest faux pas that you see athletes make when it comes to food? I know one of the ones I always hear about is fiber. You got to be careful with that before game day. That could be problematic. Yeah, there's, you know, I, I say faux pas. I mean, sometimes it is um, you can have in some cases for higher level athletes, you can have underfeeling, which is a, a hmm. concern for a significant chunk of athletes, especially weights where, body composition or weight is a part of it, um, you know, where it might be distance running or gymnastics or something like that. You know, the, the idea is that, yeah, you're going to restrict energy intake and you're going to lose body fat. You're going to, you know, maintain your weight and that's going to be good for performance. And um, that sometimes leads to situations where it's completely counterproductive and you're under fuel to the point where, it no longer is an advantage and it becomes actually a detriment to performance and then eventually to, to your health. So uh, I think that's, especially among higher level athletes in certain sports, it's a very common issue. Um, and then there's, of course, you yeah, have the mistakes that people make before competition and things like that. It can be just eating the wrong thing or too much. 
um, or trying something out, you know, that they haven't really tested out in their training and they kind of go overboard with it and figure out that, uh, you know, it didn't work well. Like an example sometimes is just doing too much caffeine, you know, before a game or a race thinking that, Oh, I've heard caffeine's good mm. for performance. And then, you know, um, you just do it, do it a little bit, uh, overkill and you don't account for the fact that a lot of athletes are already kind of hyped up for competition and you might throw a little bit too much caffeine <laughs> in the mix. And that stress response is a little bit more than what you wanted. There it is. A lot of juggling. <laughs> That's a lot yeah. of juggling. Um, I guess now so we're talking about caffeine. How important is hydration? Because this is something I see some people don't consider it very much, in, but it, even the climate can affect hydration. Am I right? Yeah. The biggest factors for fluid intake needs would be, again, uh, activity, duration, intensity, because the, the biggest thing that dictates how much fluid you need in a day is how much you're sweating. So what dictates sweat rates is environment, obviously hotter humid conditions is going to, they're going to increase sweat rates, but then work rate. So uh, easy uh, examples, if you look at a running race or a triathlon or something like that, the people who have the largest fluid deficits are typically the winners or the people at the front of the front of the pack because they're sweating the most. Um, heat production is directly related to sweat rates. So the higher intensity you're working the longer you're working, the more you're sweating uh, and the more fluid you need to replace. Other factors secondary to that would be body size and shape. People who are bigger have to rely more on sweating as a mechanism to cool off as opposed to somebody who is smaller because a smaller person has more skin surface area relative to their body volume. Um, as you make something bigger, uh, the ratio between your surface area and your body volume uh, becomes more unfavorable in terms of you're not able to get rid of heat through the kind of normal mechanisms you would, and you have to rely more on sweating. So uh, offense alignment in football, for example, that's an example of uh, an athlete. If you standardize everything else, uh, you know, uh, work rate and things like that, environmental conditions, they will still typically sweat more than smaller football players. So there's yeah a number of factors that dictate sweat rates, and ultimately it comes down to how much you're sweating uh, is going to be the main thing that dictates how much fluid you should be com consuming on a daily basis to maintain hydration status. Are you sorry? Are you folks measuring sweat sweat rates as well? You can. I mean, uh, the time where maybe that could be advantageous is if you want to get an idea about how much fluid to drink uh, during exercise, you can calculate sweat rates. And that would be simply taking your weight before and afterwards um, and then accounting for if you drank anything during the exercise. Like if you drank a liter of fluid, you'd also kind of need to consider that mm -hmm. into the calculation. But, you know, over the course of, let's say, three hours of exercise, when you experience weight change, almost all of that is due to fluid loss. So you can use weight change as a proxy for sweat rates. Um, now, is it worth it to know what your sweat rate is? I think for some, for especially some uh, endurance athletes that are maybe competing more than three hours or two hours, it can be helpful to know what your sweat rate might be. Mm -hmm. If your training or your competition is less than an hour or two hours, most of the time, I think you can just kind of drink the thirst and probably be fine. It's just not enough time to develop dehydration to the point where it's going to impact your performance. Um, I think most athletes, at least during exercise, 
thirst in many cases is sufficient to maintain hydration. The exceptions to that would be if you're going really, really long, um, then maybe, especially in a hot environment, you might think about wanting to know what your sweat rate is to try and anticipate how much do I need to drink, let's say over the course of this, uh, you know, half Ironman triathlon or something. How about urine color? Would that play a role at all? Or- That's a good question. That's actually something that I've done. A couple of studies I've done recently, not on urine color specifically, but something that is directly related to it, which is specific gravity. So mm-hmm. kind of the density of urine relative to pure water. <clears throat> and you will oftentimes read that if someone has this urine specific gravity of uh, 1.02 or above, that's indication that they're dehydrated. Uh, and that may work reasonably well uh, in some settings. The, the issue that I found is that in studies we've done, bigger people just tend to have higher urine-specific gravities at hmm. baseline. And probably the main reason for that is bigger people, especially bigger athletes, have more muscle mass. And they're excreting things from muscle in terms of metabolites the main one is creatinine. So, you know, most of your creatine is in muscle and you day to day, you break down creatine into creatinine. So somebody who has more skeletal muscle mass is going to have to excrete more creatinine in their urine. And their urine is likely to be just denser, more mm-hmm. concentrated in part because of that. So there's some studies. If you look at studies that try and estimate how common is dehydration Prior to practice or prior to games, studies estimate that 50 to 75% of athletes are dehydrated prior to even starting exercise. And I think that is a a gross overestimate of how many actually are because those studies just simply use this urine-specific gravity threshold to try and identify people who are dehydrated without really considering variations in, in size uh, variations between men and women. Women tend to have lower urine-specific gravity levels, and there's even differences between race ethnicity to some extent um, that may be partly explained by body composition, but not fully. So um, I think you can use it, urine color and urine-specific gravity, but if you were going to, what I would recommend is trying to develop like an individual profile for your athlete. So like if you're going to use urine-specific gravity as an example, testing their uh, urine-specific gravity in the morning um, several times um, in a condition where you think they're likely to be kind of normally hydrated to say, what is their baseline? And then if they spike above that, then you realize, okay, they probably need to drink more because they've been under drinking relative to where Mm. their normal baseline is, as opposed to using kind of a universal uh, threshold for everybody, which probably doesn't work because of differences in body size and body composition and some other factors. So sorry, long story short, um, you <laughs> can use good. them. You can use things like urine color and urine specific gravity, but sometimes the way they're applied in the field is it makes the information not all that great. That reminds me of the BMI. Yes. In a way it is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's really fascinating. No, no, don't, don't ever apologize for that. It's, it's great stuff. I just, now I've got my brain racking. So I'm thinking about all the different things here. Um, well, we live in, in, a, in a, we have to be real. At least I do. Uh, right. In this world, because athletes drink, they drink alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. It's going to have an impact on hydration. Um, what kind of an impact does alcohol have on an athlete, let's say, before game day? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, actually, a PhD student and I did a review paper on beer specifically. Hmm. Uh, we published a couple of years ago, a year or two ago. Um, if anybody's interested in checking it out, it's uh, Got Beer is the title. Kind of a play <laughs> on the Got Milk thing. Uh, um, yeah, surprisingly, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's it's nuanced in terms of like recovery and hydration, for example. Is drinking alcohol a problem after exercise? It is probably dose dependent. So if you have one drink or let's say one beer that's 5% alcohol, it doesn't seem to have much of an impact on rehydration. Um, Now, if you get into two, three, especially more than that drinks, the alcohol becomes sufficient to really stimulate urine urine production because it is alcohol is something uh, that is a diuretic. You know, it will cause your body to produce urine. Uh, so if you're consuming lots of alcohol post-exercise, it can be detrimental to rehydration attempts. Um, now that can be maybe offset by drinking more fluid in general. So pairing it with water or other beverages, or there's some interesting studies that were done of uh, Australia where they put extra sodium into beer and that helped a little bit. Um, I mean, I, do you want to drink salty <laughs> beer after exercise? I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I think largely it's, it's dose dependent. So one or two drinks in most cases post-exercise, I don't think you need to lose sleep over that. It becomes situations where you're heavy drinking, where it's more problematic from any number of perspectives, from hydration to um, the balance of inflammation in recovery to muscle function to muscle protein synthesis. With high levels of alcohol intake, you can negatively impact all those things. And I know this is a rare occurrence, but if you were to find an athlete who's using steroids, I'm being facetious, but if you find one who does it, does that impact the macronutrients or the hydration issue at all? That's a good question. Honestly, I don't, I don't know. I I don't know that there's much research on that question overall. Um, Hmm. You know, I, yeah, I don't honestly have a good answer for that. I'm not sure if it would or not. Yes. I know there's a dearth in research on that. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously you can't go, well, I guess you could, I don't know. Um, what about cannabis? Anything at, at all on that? Because that's another one, obviously, in today's world seems to be increasing. I'm not sure if they've done anything on that one. Yeah, we actually, I'm teaching a class uh, right now in the summer, an ergogenic AIDS class, and we actually just talked about cannabis yesterday. So it's interesting timing. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those where there is even less than alcohol. There's very, very, very little uh, research on cannabis with athletes in terms of experimental studies. Um with is that ethical reasons, you think, or is it liabilities or legal, largely legal historically, yeah. I think because of, you know, the illegality of cannabis in many places, it's been difficult to do research. So um, there is a another podcast that I had my students listen to. Uh, it's called the Cast. He's an ultra runner coach and he had a hmm. researcher on there, uh, Dr. Jamie Burr out of Canada, who they wrote a review paper on cannabis and exercise and they're doing some studies with cannabis and exercise. So that was an interesting, interesting interview, just talking about some of the logistical issues of doing research with cannabis for the most part. I mean, what we, what I've seen and what they talked about in that interview is that with cannabis use, you do see some changes cardiovascularly. Um, Typically acutely, you might see an increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure, Mm. 
Uh, how that would impact performance um, is still to be settled, but the suggestion is that it might not be favorable for, you know, sort of cardiorespiratory exercise. Like VO2 max issues or? Yeah, theoretically, I mean, and of course there's other effects too. I mean, there's the psychological effects, the mental effects um, that might also impact how somebody performs. But yeah, there's a suggestion if that you're, you know, at rest, even you're seeing a 15, you know, 10, 15 uh, beat increase in heart rate, that that may not be all that great um, for especially sustained like cardiorespiratory exercise. Uh, so they were doing, Dr. Burr was doing some studies on that and they were in the interview, they had talked about, they were kind of actively doing data collection. So I don't think that they published the actual exercise studies yet, but I would think that maybe in the next year or two, there'll be some data on that because historically it's mostly been studies from the like eighties, seventies and eighties that took either untrained people or even people with like heart failure and COPD and administered them cannabis. And you can't really you know, garner too much from those studies in terms of what impact it might have on athletes. Interesting. Yeah, I guess for me, right, maybe Tim Leary and Baba Ramdas had something. I'm look in their files later on, but I guess for me, I was thinking about the munchies. You know, that's what you always hear about marijuana. And I thought, I wonder if this starts altering their appetite. Does it, does it require a different macronutrient? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a whole other question too, is like the those effects on appetite and other um, other things just you know, beyond the the performance implications. Um, yeah, it's certainly being more commonly used uh, among the general population and athletes. So it, it would be helpful to know, you know, what are what are some of the effects here? And folks, and if you're wondering, well, you got to get them on the show. Yeah, we'll reach out to Dr. Burr ourselves as well and, and see what we can do. But in the meantime, you can catch that other podcast and see what they're up to. And uh, you can give us other questions that maybe he he didn't uh, they didn't ask. And we'll see what we can get from Dr. Burr. <laughs> See what they're up to over there on that side. Um, this is going to be an unusual question, but it, but it dawns on it, it came to my mind just because of my background. Medications is something people don't talk about. Some athletes will suffer from antidepressant or anti anxiety. Have you seen anything there at all by chance? Uh, you know, I, certainly those medications can impact things like appetite uh, and uh, body weight in some cases. In terms of athletes and research and how that interacts with nutrition, I honestly haven't haven't seen much much research on that. So, I think largely would be kind of anecdote or extrapolating from from studies of non athletes in terms of what you know what might be some implications there. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting question, but I don't yeah I don't really have probably a real clear answer for you in terms of what that impact might be. Yeah, I, I thought because it, it was kind of interesting. I was just surprised the amount of physiological things that it causes yeah. people. It's like, well, geez, really? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. But I don't know. I don't know how many athletes are actually on that stuff. And yeah, it'd be a fascinating discussion. I know we got a few minutes left before you, you have to go. And I really appreciate again your time. By the way, folks, again, this is Dr. Patrick Wilson, and the book is The Athlete's Gut. I highly recommend you go check it out. So let me ask you uh, this. We talked about hydration. We talked about uh, somewhat macronutrients, fat. This is another big one that people talk about uh, sometimes in the circles, omega-3s, omega-6s. What is it with fat, saturated, unsaturated? You got all kinds of wars going on out there. What's your take on fat and for the athlete? Um, yeah, you know, fat is certainly something that uh, can have an impact in different ways. Uh, you know, for performance, is fat something that is helpful? It, it, you know, a higher fat diet, theoretically, in some situations 
might have some advantages. And sometimes it's not necessarily the high fat component. It can also just be, you know, if you're eating a lot of fat, that means you're not eating a lot of carbohydrate. Mm. So for example, if you have an athlete that maybe you could stand to lose a little bit of weight or body fat, um, there's certainly studies that have put active individuals, recreational athletes on ketogenic diets or low carb, high fat diets, they lose weight and they perform better. So, you know, that's, I think that's an aspect to consider for some athletes um, that if it allows you to manage your weight a little bit better, there can be some advantages there. For ultra endurance athletes, you know, when they're competing, you know, they're largely exercising at less than 60% of their VO2 max or their maximal oxygen mm. uh, consumption. So that's a zone where you're already burning a lot of fat. And um, if any event where that makes sense uh, to eat some more fat, I mean, that's one where at least I would say for a lot of athletes, a higher fat diet would be perhaps equivalent to a high carb diet. Um, you know, in some cases, some athletes might perform better on a high fat diet among those ultra endurance athletes. Really, really difficult to do research in that area because if you can imagine trying to bring in volunteers, um, asking them to do different diets and then performing, you know, for five, six, seven, eight hours, you know, nine hours, 10 hours on a treadmill or something like that, just logistically very, very difficult studies to do. So there's not a lot of studies on, on that, even though that's the type of population that would, um, I think, be more likely to benefit from a high fat diet. Omega-3s, there's some evidence for... Uh, recovery, you know, um, helping to speed up recovery with muscle damaging exercise. Um, there's some interesting evidence around head injury, uh, as well as uh, some, you know, some other effects around older individuals with muscle growth. If they had a higher omega-3 intake and their protein intake was suboptimal, it might help with some of the muscle building going on. Um, so there's some things there, I think, with omega-3s, especially that's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't describe any of them as like game changers for most people, but there's some interesting data there where there may be some benefits to a higher omega-3 intake um, with respect to some of those applications. I guess my last question, it seems like a lot of this stuff is based on marketing. Really, am I, am I off on that? Like, in other words, I see a certain products and they'll pick one study that has sample size of two, including the researcher. And they'll just say, this is what you got to use. And you're kind of like, yeah, wow. Okay. And I get it. General population doesn't do all this work to, to hunt this down, but they see a study yeah. and that's the right thing to do. I was studied. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Yeah. That's you're, you're, you're very much right about that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, products that will say that they've been tested or they've been proven to work in a, in a study I mean, if you go and look at the studies that they're referencing, I mean, a lot of times if you actually read it in detail, it, it wouldn't really support what they're actually claiming. Um, either mm. the study's too small or the types of tests they use are just not really relevant or they're exaggerating how much benefit you're going to get. And that's just that's the small subset of companies and things that are actually saying they've done research. And then there's the other 95 percent who haven't done any research on their products mm. and just make claims um, and market. Um, and, you know, it's attractive for people, I think, and I understand, you know, it's attractive to, to think that you can take a pill or use a supplement or a device or whatever, and it's going to be kind of a quick way to get where you want to get. But in many of those cases, the, the benefits are either non-existent or way smaller than what people really think. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation for another podcast. 
podcast. <laughs> a lot of weeds going on that one. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wilson, for taking the time to be with us. Sure. Thanks for the invite. It's been an interesting conversation. Absolutely. I learned a lot. By the way, folks, again, Dr. Patrick Wilson, The Athlete's Gut, The Inside Science of Digestion, Nutrition, and Stomach Distress. Go check it out. And you know what to do. Share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know we like it. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.